Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. Today we're going to talk about the collapse of the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne, Australia in 1970. It killed 35 people and left a scar on Melbourne for decades to come. But what is not well known was that this failure was not an isolated incident. A number of bridges of the same design were collapsing around the world at the same time. So this is not only the story of the Westgate Bridge collapse, it's the story of how an industry was changed in the face of multiple failures. November 1969, residents in Vienna, Austria, hear three loud bangs echoed through the evening air. Now, if you were one of these residents and you set off to find the cause of these bangs, your search would take you to the banks of the River Danube. And on the banks of the River Danube, they were constructing the Fort Danube Bridge. Now, this 412-metre-long continuous box girder bridge hasn't collapsed, but it's damaged, and it's hanging in the air, kinked and distorted. Seven months later and almost 2,000 kilometres away, one of the longest bridges in Europe is under construction near the seaport of Milford Haven in Wales. It too is a continuous box girder bridge. Then on the 2nd of June 1970, with one of its cantilevered spans stretching 61 metres over the river, it suddenly buckles over a support and collapses. This time, there are four fatalities. Fast forward to the 10th of November 1971 and we find ourselves in West Germany where a continuous box girder bridge is being constructed over the River Rhine. It's the first all-welded bridge in West Germany and it's got a central span of 236 metres. Then its bottom cord suffers a compression failure and the bridge buckles, not over the support but halfway along the cantilevered span. And now it hangs like a broken-necked animal with its head in the river. And this time there are 13 fatalities. Then on the 9th of November 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down. And over time, people begin to look into the East German files. And the engineering fraternity is amazed to find out that there'd been another box girder bridge collapse. But this one had been kept secret. It turns out that back in 1973, at around the time of the other failures, a bridge had failed in Zulenroda about 100 kilometres from Leipzig. Four died, but because it happened on the 12th anniversary of the building of the Berlin Wall, it was hidden from the public and the wider world. But there is one more box girder bridge we need to talk about, and it was the most catastrophic failure of them all and claimed the greatest loss of life, and it happened in Melbourne, Australia. So the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne was meant to be eight lanes wide and 2.6 kilometres in length, and it was going to consist of concrete spans and steel spans. So the concrete spans were each 67 metres long. And then there was five continuous steel box girder spans, totaling a pretty incredible 448 metres in length. And these box girder spans were going to be supported by cables as they stretched out over the lower Yarra River. So it's probably wise to talk about what we mean when we say box girder bridge for all the, the non-engineers listening. So there are a lot of definitions, but the key part for our story is, is that a box girder bridge is a bridge span that consists of flat steel plates that are welded together to form a hollow span. So think of each span as being like its own shoebox, you know, thin sides and a hollow space. 
Now, these box girder bridges are a really good idea because they're really efficient. You know, they can be very light because they've got thin sides, but they can span long distances. Now, they typically include stiffeners, and again, it's worth ta- talking a little bit about them. But stiffeners are included in the box girder to, you know, as the name suggests, stiffen the box. So imagine you've got your shoe box and you want to add some stiffeners. I mean, you can do this by essentially sticky taping extra strips of cardboard to certain parts of the shoe box. Now, you also get stiffeners inside the box. You know, it's a bit like adding a divider to your shoe box. Um, think of it as, as the ends of the shoe box being repeated at various points along the shoe box. And of course, what this does is it adds a lot more stiffness and prevents the box from, from buckling. So if you're a, a structural designer and you want to design each of these spans, you need to make sure that they don't distort too much or twist too much, or more importantly, that they don't collapse in on themselves or buckle. And they can do this, of course, because they're hollow. Now, these steel box girder bridges had initially gained popularity in post-war Germany, particularly in West Germany, because they had to go and replace all the bridges that had been destroyed in the Second World War. And there's a really fascinating rumour that the steel box girder concept was actually driven by Luftwaffe engineers who were prevented from building new aircraft. So they, they turned the skills to bridge building. And if you think about that, it makes sense. You know, These hollow, thin-walled metal bridges are very, very similar to the fuselage of, of airplanes. Okay, so with all that in mind, and I appreciate this is, a, this is one of the more technical of the podcasts, let's go to the construction of the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne. So the design of this bridge was carried out by the UK consulting firm Freeman, Fox and Partners. And they were the same consultants that had worked on the Milford Haven Bridge in the UK, which had also collapsed. But at this stage, when the construction of Westgate was, was about to begin in April 1968, the first of the box girder collapses over the River Danube was, was yet to take place. So nobody was really aware that there was a, a problem with this bridge design. But from the onset in, in Melbourne, there, there were issues. There was widespread labour strikes and the steel contractor even had to be replaced in 1970. Then along comes the news of the Milford Haven collapse. Now, Freeman, Fox and Partners claimed this was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, but they still went ahead and carried out strengthening works on Westgate anyway. And they also pointed out that a very different construction methodology was being used in Melbourne. So all the other bridges we've been talking about were being built using the free cantilevering method. And this is where the bridge stretches out over the river with no supporting formwork. So in other words, the bridge has to be strong enough to support its own weight as it stretches out over the river during construction. And this, this is how the other bridges were constructed. So the bridge in Melbourne was being constructed using a different methodology, but the actual methodology they were using would, would prove to be fatal. So what was this methodology? Well, rather than using a free cantilevering method, the contractor was fabricating half of each span on the ground. So imagine cutting each span along its length, and when you do that, you end up with two spans, each that are half width wide. Then the contractor took each of these half spans in turn and lifted them 50 metres up in the air and slid them into position on top of the supports. So in this way, the contractor was able to halve the load they needed to do in each lift, but they doubled the number of lifts they'd need to do. So by the time of the Milford Haven collapse, the east and west spans of the Westgate Bridge, each 112 metres long, were ready for erection. Then one of the half spans on the east side developed a problem. It was fabricated on the ground, but when it was lifted off its temporary trestles at ground level, it suddenly developed a buckle on the top free flange. So the top free flange is the name we give to the top plate of the bridge. So think of this as the the lid of your shoebox. And the part of the flange that buckled was the part that would ultimately run down the centre line of the bridge 
when it was connected with the other half span. So basically, imagine you have a shoebox, you cut it along its length, so you now have two half shoeboxes, and each of them is the same length as the original shoebox, and then the lid of one of those shoeboxes where it was cut buckles. Now, this buckle occurred because of the decision to lift each half span separately. And it's a long, complicated story about why this buckle takes place, but it ultimately comes down to this. The two half spans are not as stiff as as when you join them together and form a shoebox. And and think about that for a moment. A shoebox is quite stiff. You cut it in half along its length, you'll be able to twist it and wobble it a lot easier. So this comes down to the stiffness being the problem. But that being said, you now have this buckle in the top flange. So what do you do about it? Well, pretty amazingly, rather than lowering the span back onto its trestles and taking the load off it, and then they could remove the buckle while it was still at ground level, they made the decision to continue with the lift. Now, somehow, they were going to try and work out how to remove this buckle when the span was in its final position, but that was at a height of 50 metres up in the air. And the buckle was significant. It was 380 millimetres. And you know, once this span was placed in position, there was no way you could unload it. But despite all this, they went ahead with the lift. So now they had to straighten out the buckle in midair. And the method chosen was to remove bolts from some of the transverse splices in the top flange. So what we mean by this is that the top flange, you know, the lid of our shoebox, is not actually made up of one continuous steel plate. It's actually a jigsaw of plates that are joined together, and each of these joints is, is called a splice. So what they were doing was they were going to remove the bolts from the splices, which then would allow the plates of the top flange to slide over one another, and they could flatten out the bulge. Then once they flattened out the bulge, new holes could be drilled, or existing holes could be widened in the overlapping plates, and new bolts were installed. Now this is exactly what they did, and it worked. But it's worth pointing out at this point that once you start removing bolts from splice plates in a top flange, you're reducing the bridge's ability to carry load. But this time it worked, and there was no problem. So attention now turned to the west span. And because they had this buckling problem in the east span, in order to prevent that buckling of the free flange on, on this half span and the west span, what they did was they added an extra stiffener along the flange, and they also added some cross beams running diagonally from the top free flange back to the bottom flange. In other words, they, they propped the free flange to stop it moving out of position and buckling. And this arrangement worked really well, and the buckling was prevented during the lifts, so they didn't have a repeat problem as what they had on the east span. But they did have a problem. When they went to connect the two half spans, they discovered that there was a vertical gap of 115 millimetres between them, so one was higher than the other. Now, they'd faced this sort of issue on the east span, and they'd been able to remove this gap with hydraulic jacks. But the gap of 115 millimetres on the west span was too large a distance for the gaps to close. So what they decided was to place some very heavy concrete blocks on the high half span to cause it to deflect and bring it into line with the other half span. So they were going to add load, quite a considerable load, to this half span. Now in all they placed 51 tonne of large concrete blocks on one half span to close the gap. And it worked and the two halves were brought into line. But then suddenly the entire upper flange buckled across its width. So you know, the one thing they'd been trying to prevent when using the props had now occurred. And it occurred because even though they'd added additional stiffeners and they'd propped the flange, this had been sufficient during the lift to stop the free flange buckling, but it was the addition of the concrete blocks that was simply too much. The flange couldn't deal with it and it buckled. Then the whole thing just sits in the air for one month while they try and figure out what to do with it. And finally, a decision is made 
They used the same method to relieve the buckle in this span as they'd used on the E-span. They were going to remove some bolts from the transverse splices, relieve the stresses, and straighten the buckle. But the problem here was there was a significant difference between the west span and the east span. The west span had additional loading of the concrete blocks and the buckle was considerably larger than on the east span. So they begin removing bolts. And the stresses in the remaining part of the top flange begin to increase. They remove 16 bolts and they keep going. And when 37 bolts were removed, the bridge had simply had enough. Its net section failed and the remaining bolts in the top flange sheared. Then the left hand span began to drop downwards and then the load shifted to the right hand half span because these were partially connected. And then the entire span collapsed, falling 50 metres to the ground below. There were 35 fatalities. Now the events of 1969 to 1973 were almost an unprecedented series of bridge failures. You know, five bridges and 56 fatalities. The rapid collapse of the bridges was, was really stark. The Fort Daniel Bridge failed in November 1969, followed by the Milford Haven seven months later, followed by the Westgate Bridge four months later, followed by the Rhine River Bridge 13 months later, and the Zillaranda Bridge 21 months later. And such a rapid series of events illustrates how difficult it is to undertake you know, proper investigations into these collapses and then get that information back into the profession to arrest the flow of failures. And even though some strengthening of Westgate had occurred in the wake of Milford Haven, it wasn't enough to address an endemic lack of understanding about bridges built from tin plates. The tree-span continuous Fort Danube Bridge collapsed largely because of temperature effects. So during its construction, both sides of the centre span were cantilevering towards one another and they were going to be joined. And then on the afternoon of the 6th of November 1969, the two cantilevers met in the middle and were joined. But the warm temperatures during the afternoon had caused the spans to expand, so they actually had to be shortened to connect them. Then in the evening the temperature dropped, and the bridge began to contract, which started to stretch its top flange in tension. And as the temperature continued to drop, the tension in the top flange increased. And because the top was in tension, the entire bottom flange goes into compression. Now, the original plan was to lower the bridge's inner supports once the cantilevers had been joined, and this would have prevented all the behaviour we just talked about. But because it was late in the evening, it was decided to undertake this lowering the following day, and this is what ultimately caused the problem. And as the compression forces in the bridge's lower flange kept increasing as the evening cooled, it eventually buckled in three places. And if you think back, these three buckles were what caused the three loud bangs that the residents heard in Vienna. Now, the Milford Haven collapse was initiated by an inadequately stiffened diaphragm inside the bridge. You know, the designers at the time were unaware of the complex behaviour of diaphragm plants, and the design codes simply reflected this lack of knowledge. The Westgate Bridge collapse, as we know, was the result of a variety of causes, but central was the lack of understanding of the behaviour of stiffening plants. The Rhine Bridge collapse was caused by the buckling of its compression flange, not over the support, but halfway along the cantilever, and finally, the Zulamranda Bridge collapse appears to have been caused by tough flange plates and longitudinal stiffeners that simply weren't strong enough. But this failure is pretty short on specific details. And after all these collapses, there was a, a flurry of activity. In Australia, there was a Royal Commission into the Westgate Bridge failure. And following the collapse of the bridge at Milford Haven, the Marison Committee introduced an interim report with new design rules and workmanship guidance. 
that this research was put into practice by the industry and existing bridges were strengthened. So out of all this destruction came new ways of working with box girder bridges and a better understanding of how they actually worked. And I think these stories of these bridge failures tells us a lot about how structural engineering works and the limitations of the, of the approach we, we, we are forced to take because of what we do. Now, failure will always be part of human endeavour, and primarily because we humans are involved in it. And structural engineering, just like all professions, can't truly advance without its failures. And this is the sad reality of our profession. We don't get a chance to build prototypes and iron out the bugs. The testing of assumptions and design methodologies happens in the real world, in public view, and sometimes with tragic consequences. And ensuring that the lessons are learned from these tragedies as they war with the box girder bridges will never bring back the people who died or take away the pain they left behind, but it may just stop it happening to somebody else.